Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Utopia Podcast, formerly known as Nonprofit U. Our podcast is an extension of our community, and we provide a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard, your host. I'm the founder of Nonprofit Utopia, the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. I work with nonprofit organizations to help them make a stronger impact to their clients and communities. You can find out more about us on the nonprofitutopia.com, Facebook, and Twitter. I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often using the hashtags nonprofitutopia, board development, and look before you leap, exclamation point. You can also leave comments on blogtalkradio.com forward slash nonprofit utopia. The chat room is open, and you can post comments and questions. In order to use the chat room, all you need to do is click, and you can join immediately. And you should know that any comments that you post will be immediately deleted after the episode is over. In fact, the whole chat conversation will be deleted immediately afterwards. You can also email me questions at Valerie F. Leonard at nonprofitutopia.com. And for obvious reasons, I won't be able to email you as I speak on the podcast, but I will get back to you just as soon as I can. We'll be taking questions by phone and from our chat room at about the 30-minute mark or so. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. We encourage you to sign up for our mailing list to keep abreast of the latest developments with the nonprofit Utopia community. We've included a link to our mailing list in the comment section, and this is a social show. With that said, we encourage you to share this episode on Facebook. You can do that right now, share a link right now, you know, share it with people that you think should be part of this conversation, and also let them know that the call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121, and we'll be entertaining questions at about the half-hour mark. And you can also share this episode after it's done on Facebook, on Twitter, and in your networks. So, you have just been asked to join the board of directors of an organization, and you're weighing the opportunity to share your skills, time, talent, and networks. What should you be doing before you join, if you join? So, we'll share an overview of roles and of nonprofit boards, the questions you should ask before joining any nonprofit board of directors, some of the common issues you might face as a board member, and strategies you might consider using to address them. Again, I want to encourage you to call in at 347-884-8121 at about 2.30 or so, and you can also start chatting your or posting your comments in the chat room. Okay, so what happens when you get invited to a board of directors? Do you just join because, you know, a friend or a relative suggests that you do it? Or, you know, are you in awe of 
this wonderful organization that has such a, a strong, strong reputation in the community and in the civic environment, and you just want to be a part of it? Do you just go in, whole hog, or do you, in fact, do your homework? And as with anything, I strongly recommend that you do your homework. If they allow you to do it, you know, first of all, you want to make sure or ask if they have some sort of orientation, some sort of session that they might have with prospective, um, prospective members because you have to be careful how you ask your questions, but nonetheless, you want to be able to find out really, really pertinent information before you join. I would ask, you know, if they could set some time for me to look at the corporate record book. And the corporate record book is, you know, really, really important. It's got, you know, all of the key documents. And, you know, if you inspect it and it doesn't have key documents, that would give you <laughs> some indication of how well or not well they manage their organization. So it would have things like minutes. You know, sometimes they call it the minute book. Um, it would have the articles of incorporation. It would have their Form 1023, which is the application for tax-exempt status. It would have the tax-exempt letter. It would have, um, you know, depending on how they organize things, it would have Form 990 and bylaws. So all of those permanent records of an organization should be kept in that book. And that is a really, really good indicator of you know, how well the organization is managed, um, how um, well they comply with their own bylaws, as well as um, some of the state and federal regulations. So you know, ask if you can spend some time looking in that book. Okay, so what should you look for? You know, when you look at the bylaws, you want to look at things like, you know, the terms of office. You know, are there term limits? Um, the bylaws would give you a sense for the structure of the organization and how they make decisions. It also tells you how the organization should operate, right? You know, if there are related policies, you know, you might be interested in looking at those, particularly policies as they relate to conflicts of interest, uh, financial policies. You know, we're not talking about the operating policies at this point. We're talking about board policies. And, you know, the purpose for your looking at this is, you know, like I said, you want to get a sense for how well the organization is run, but you also want to get a sense for what you could be in for as, you know, as a um, member of the board. Because ultimately, you as a member of the board, you are legally responsible for everything that goes on, more so than the executive director or any staff member. So, um, again, you want to look at those bylaws and the rules and all that good stuff, but you also want to make sure those bylaws were properly ratified by the board, you know, were they certified by the 
secretary indicating that, you know, they were actually, you know, there was a vote where they were adopted by the board of directors. You would also want to, you know, be on site to inspect the minutes. You know, um, you want, and if they allow you to inspect the minutes, that would be a wonderful thing. If they're reluctant, that should give you pause because you will be coming into an environment where there are minutes, and and minutes are legally binding um, documents. So it's really important for you to be able to inspect the minutes. And if they allow you to inspect the minutes, you want to check for things like attendance. You know, are there ever any instances where they fail to make a quorum? And if so, why did they not have a quorum? And, you know, and when I talk about a quorum, we're talking about the minimum number of people, according to their bylaws, that are necessary to be present at a meeting in order to transact business. And when we say transact business, we're not necessarily talking about having a meeting per se, but we're talking about having a meeting and being able to engage in votes. So if you have less than a quorum, legally you cannot transact business. I mean, you can meet, but you can't have any votes that would, um, you know, encumber the organization. So if you see a pattern where it's difficult to have a quorum, you know, that is a very, very strong indicator of a dysfunctional board and probably a dysfunctional organization. So if, if people can't manage, you know, the the leadership properly, then you can imagine that the operations and staff and all that other stuff might have problems too. So you, you really want to check that out. You also want to look at things like, you know, what business was discussed? You know, are there items on the agenda that tend to linger or are there items on the agenda are they disposed of pretty quickly? So again, that gives you an indicator of, you know, whether this is an organization that's pretty efficient or if they have some problems. And I'm not saying that because they have problems you shouldn't join. You should, you know, go into this wide open and there is no perfect organization. God knows I wish there were, but there's no such thing as a perfect organization, but you need to do your due diligence to understand what it is you're going to be walking into. So generally speaking, and you know, every board has its own specific business to take care of, but generally speaking and legally speaking, every board member, regardless of what organization you're in, how old it is, how large it is, how small it is, every board member has a duty of loyalty to the organization. And what that means is there should be no conflicts of interest. You should not have divided loyalty between your organization and, say, a family member or your organization and and a spouse, your organization, and another organization on which you sit on the board or your organization and your own business. If there is a time when such 
um, conflicts arise, is best practices to disclose those conflicts and then recuse yourself. And when I say disclose, you need to let the board know before any vote, any decision is made that you have a potential conflict. You need to let them know what the conflict is and then recuse yourself from the vote and excuse yourself from the room, you know, so people don't feel pressure of your presence to vote a certain way. Now, if you get to a point where you have a lot of recusals to make as a board member, that is symptomatic of serious conflicts of interest, and you probably should not be a board member if you have to continuously recuse yourself from votes. You know, that's just not a normal thing, and it is, quite frankly, frowned upon by the IRS. And there are instances where organizations have, in fact, lost their tax-exempt status because, um, you know, organization board members and officers seem to have been enriching themselves as a result of the organization. In fact, you know, it seemed like they were benefiting or profiting, you know, more so than um, or profiting at the expense of the organization itself and not necessarily um, in the business for a tax-exempt purpose and, you know, in name only. So if the IRS notices there are a number of conflicts of interest like that and it seems that the officers are benefiting from those conflicts, you know, getting business and, you know, I guess there's an inurement clause. So if you seem to be enriching yourself as a result of your nonprofit activities, then that raises a red flag and your organization could, in fact, lose its tax-exempt status. There is also a duty of care. And what duty of care means is that every matter that comes before the board has to be weighed carefully, meaning you have to look at the pros, advantages, look at the disadvantages, and you have to always look at it within the context of how that benefits the organization and not yourself personally, not your pet project personally. How is it going to benefit the organization? So you have to weigh the decisions, you know, honestly and objectively. And ideally, you know, in those cases where there's a lot of money involved and um, it's a complex project, say a construction project, you really want to have some decision-making criteria that will back up your decision and help you to actually make up the decision. So in a nutshell, duty of care means no rubber stamping. You know, you have to weigh the issues carefully, make sure they're in the best interest of the organization, and you can't just vote one way because the leader of the organization or an influential member of the organization tells you to do so. You should not be voting on anything without reading um, the information that's put before you. You know, as a member of the board, it's your duty to make informed decisions. And then thirdly, there is the duty to obey. So you want to make sure that you are obeying 
the rules of the organization um, that includes bylaws and policies, you want to make sure that you're in compliance with whatever mission the organization has, and then you want to make sure that you're in compliance with, say, the IRS, you know, at the federal level and your state and local government as it relates to nonprofits. And in a very real sense, you need to be in compliance with the law at all times. But, you know, as we're speaking, we're just talking about as they relate to nonprofits. And then you want to make sure that you're following policy. So some of the typical activities you would be engaged in as a board member would be things like setting strategic direction. And, you know, that's not getting in the weeds, but you're just saying generally this is what the environment is, these are the needs, um, this is how we're going to respond to the needs based on our capabilities, that kind of stuff. So, so at a very very broad level, you want to position the organization, you're setting that strategy. And once you set that strategy or strategic direction, then, you know, you let it go, you know, depending on whether or not you have staff. You know, if you have staff, then it's up to the executive director and staff to actually do the implementation. If you're coming onto a working board where there is no staff, then you are going to not only be a part of setting the direction, you're going to be a direct part of implementation or making sure the strategies are actually coming to fruition. You will be evaluating the effectiveness of programs, evaluating budgets, um, making uh, decisions as to how do we prioritize these various programs and the spending and all that good stuff. You will also be responsible for measuring performance. So that could be operating indicators, you know, you know, of success, you know, things like profitability, you know, whether or not you're operating in the red, which is, are the negative, meaning you're spending more money than is coming in, are you, and then what do you do? <laughs> you know, it's one thing to have a deficit, but you need to respond accordingly. So you'll be me- measuring and monitoring performance. You'll also be measuring and monitoring not only operational performance, but um, programmatic performance. And when we talk about operations, we're talking about how the organization itself um, is doing. When we talk about programs, we're talking about very specific um, programs, you know, a, a line of activities that actually have goals, objectives, and outcomes. That versus a service where we know it's more the good, but we're not really intentional. We don't necessarily have goals and objectives and intention of making change. So a board is responsible for looking at all that stuff. Again, you know, you don't have to be an expert. You know, you have staff who are experts who can explain, but it will be your duty to understand, you know, what the goals and objectives were and use those measurements, you know, whether they be outcome or other performance measurements, and benchmarks to determine whether or not you are actually meeting those goals 
that in turn will help you to meet your mission. And if if not, then you're going to have to make some critical decisions, and then it will be up to staff to actually implement, you know, what has been stated at the top level. And, again, if you don't have staff, then it will be you as one of the board members to help implement that. You will also be serving as an educator and an ambassador to the organization. So in the absence of the actual organization itself, you are the face. You're the first thing that people will see. You know, typically the board chair is the face of the organization and or the CEO or the executive director, but when they're not around, you know, you as a board member, you're going to be talking the organization up. And, you know, if you're enthusiastic, if you're excited about this wonderful organization of which you're a part, then obviously um, your enthusiasm can be very contagious, and then hopefully people will want to join. So at this point, I am going to take a pause. I want to remind you that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast with Valerie Leonard. We'll be taking questions from our listening audience in the chat room very shortly. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. We encourage you to share this episode as we speak, and we also encourage you, you know, after this is done, to, to share and before we get back into our discussion, you know, I want to tell you a little bit about Nonprofit Utopia. We are the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. We've created a safe environment in which our members can innovate, speak candidly about the issues. Our mission is to provide ongoing professional development and networking opportunities in which experienced nonprofit professionals can share expertise with the next generation of ethical leaders. The overarching goal of the community is to give our members the tools they need to develop strong organizations that will make a lasting impact. Our vision is to strengthen the global nonprofit sector by providing training and development opportunities for 50,000 emerging nonprofit leaders throughout the world by 2033. And you can visit nonprofitutopia.com and nonprofitutopia.mn.co to find out more information. In fact, we have links to our community as well as our website in the comment section. And also, we've noticed that our international audience is growing, and we really, really would love it if we could have our hosts to reflect that growing international community. So if you know of an international uh, NGO, non-governmental organization, uh, whose leader should be on this show, please, please email us at info at nonprofitutopia.com. Again, that is info at nonprofitutopia.com. All right, so um, 
again, what do you do? What do you, what should you be looking at? Um, we talked about how you should be looking at the bylaws. We talked about how you should ask to inspect the minutes. And when you look at the minutes, we talked about attendance and quorums and all that good stuff. Another thing you should be looking at is Form 990. So in lieu of filing taxes, you know, we individuals have to file our individual tax returns, Form 1040, and pay taxes. So in lieu of that or instead of that, organizations have to file Form 990. And by law, any organization, you know, if you ask for Form 990, they have to give it to you. They have to give you up to three years of Form 990s on demand at request. And you don't want to go in there, you know, and give demand, demand. But, you know, upon your request, they should give it to you. If they don't give it to you, then they're in violation of the law, and technically you could report them, and the IRS will look into it. Um, you may or may not want to do that, and I would not necessarily recommend reporting an organization that you're considering joining the board. But if they don't share that with you, that is a red flag in and of itself, right? So when you look at the Form 990, the Form 990, instead of um, being for taxes, it's an informational return because, remember, these organizations, nonprofits, are tax-exempt organizations. So you want to look at things like the filing date. Were they filed on time? And the way you know whether or not it's been filed on time is um, to look at their fiscal year end. And if they have filed um, within five and a half months of their fiscal year end, then we know that they have filed on time. And you can, you know, just like uh, we do in real life, you can get an extension, you know, ask for additional time, and then you will get, I believe, about three months, 90 days extension. And if you don't have that information, you know, if it looks like they haven't filed in a while, you know, if, if the information, you know, if their most current 990 is from, say, two years ago or three years ago, that could be problematic. I'm not telling you not to join, but it would be it would behoove them to get current because if they have not filed those Form 990s within the next um, three years, or if they're if they have not filed, I'm sorry, they have not filed for three years in a row, they could lose their tax exemption. The Form 990 also tells you the financial performance. You know, it'll tell you how much money came in, how much money went out, you know, whether there was a deficit, whether there was carryover. It'll talk about restricted funds. You'll also be able to, you know, if you look carefully and analyze them, you'll be able to tell whether or not there are conflicts of interest. You know, common conflicts of interest could be, you know, you look at the list of board members and officers, and then um, they also have to disclose, you know, who their highest paid consultants are, 
and you know any other major uh, expenditures who that went to and if you see that you know companies that are owned by say the board chair are getting loans and this company doesn't give loans even to other folks in the community you know that raises a red flag I'm not saying it's illegal but it makes you wonder um, if you see that they're also renting to companies owned by board members or or buildings owned by board members. There's a consistent flow of these transactions between companies that are owned by board members and the organization itself. That could be a problem. Again, remember I said that the IRS frowns upon that. You can also look at the 990 for accomplishments. You know, there's a section where they disclose their accomplishments. They get to brag about how well they've done. And then if you're really nerdy, you want to look at things like the financial trends. You know, is their financial performance stable? Is it trending downward? Is it on the increase? Right, so that's really important. You also want to look at their financial statements. Are their financial statements audited, meaning that a certified public accountant has compiled them? I mean, I'm sorry, has actually audited them. I'm sorry. And when they do an audit, they are actually making an opinion as to whether or not these statements follow or conform to generally accepted accounting principles. They are not giving an opinion as to whether or not any fraud occurred. You know, you actually have to have you know, a, a different audit for that. But generally speaking, the audited financial statement is you know, one of the highest levels, actually it is the, the highest level of um, reporting. And again, you'll have a CPA sign off give an opinion as to whether or not these statements actually comply. And then if they find areas where, you know, there are instances where the financial system could be tightened up a little bit, is what we call financial controls, then they will make notes. So you want to not only look at the financial statements, but you want to look at the auditor's notes to see if they had any quote-unquote findings, and these findings will reveal some of the problems that they encountered and make recommendations for correction. So sometimes those findings might be a little bit more important to read. You might want to read the findings first or the auditor's um, report statements first before you go into the statement. And then there's the compilation. The compilation is compiled by an accountant you know, who doesn't work for your organization, uh, in many cases by a CPA. They are pulling the statements together, and they, they really these statements really do look almost identical to audited statements because, one, they're putting them in the format of generally accepted accounting principles. However, you need to read and see whether or not it's a compilation 
one audited statement. So if it's an audited statement, again, they will give an opinion as to whether or not these actually conform to generally accepted accounting principles. The compilation, they're going to give you a format that looks like GAP. Well, it's prepared in GAP, but they're making, you know, they're not putting their stamp of approval saying that, you know, this actually um, follows some you know, levels of control. And to the best of my knowledge, they don't give an opinion either. They're just making them look decent and presentable, and they're not going to just throw junk together. They They are... Um, decent and presentable, and they do, in fact, follow GAP, but they're not given an opinion as to how closely aligned they are with GAP and whether or not you have strong financial controls. And then there are books that are put together by QuickBooks, with QuickBooks. And those, um, if they, you know, you want to look and see if the statements are done cash or accrual. If they're done with cash, you know, that is pretty much, and when I say with cash, I'm talking about the cash basis. So if it's done on the cash basis, then it is pretty much like a checkbook, right? You know, how you look at your money coming in and you look at your money going out. And it it ties very, very, very closely to your checkbook and bank balance if it and that's not considered generally accepted accounting principles. Um, if it's done by accrual, if you see the report that says accrual, then that is considered gap. That's a more acceptable format. And yeah, you know, so that would be, you know, very, very telling. And and when we look at accrual, we're looking at matching income and expenses at the time they occurred, not necessarily at the time you have cash on hand. You know, your more conservative organizations will probably, you know, especially if they're small, will probably use the cash method, even though that's not considered cap. All righty. Um, we have passed 2.30. I want to let you know um, we are – you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast with Valerie Leonard. We are taking questions from our listening audience right about now. You can also post in the chat room. Our call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. You also want to look at whether or not they have a strategic plan in place, and if they don't, are there any plans? And that's important, you know, are there any plans to actually have one? A strategic plan is very important because it shows you how you're going to approach changes in the environment within the capability of your organization. You want to look at their programs, see if they make sense um, to you. See if they even excite you because you don't want to be on the board and not excited about what it is the organization has to offer. You also want to get an overview of the organization. So look at things, obviously, the website, marketing materials, their mission, goals, core values, 
And one thing, too, you want to observe, you know, people state their core values being one thing, but they don't necessarily live them out. Um, You know, what they say and what they do may be different. If you are not that familiar with the organization, you may not be able to tell up front whether they are living lives consistent with their core value. And when I say living lives, we're talking about the organization and not the individual. And, you know, that matters. You know, it may not matter at first, but when you have to make some really, really, really tough decisions, then you find out what the core values are. You know, just like if you were married and you marry someone with a different belief system, you know, a different religion, you know, when you have children um, or health crises, you know, that's when you can have differences, you know, in your core values show up. And it doesn't necessarily have to be religious difference, but that's an example. But just like in our personal lives where core values guide everything we say and do, whether or not we say it or not, that's true. The same is true for organizations. All right. Another thing you want to ask about is insurance. You know, do they have directors and officers insurance? You know, because you, remember, you are legally liable for whatever goes on in that organization. And it doesn't matter whether you know it or not. You can't plead ignorance. So, you know, you put a lot on the line when you think about it as a volunteer who's a member of the board. So it would be very, very helpful to you if they had directors and officers insurance. So in the event that they were sued, the organization was sued, you are protected. Now, it doesn't cover um, instances where there's some actual fraud or malfeasance, but, you know, for other areas, it does cover that, uh, cover the people. So you don't have to worry about your personal liability. And then you want to make sure that there is liability insurance in the event that something happens on, you know, on premises. If somebody gets hurt, hurt on premises or if kids are involved and they go on the trip, you want to make sure they're covered and all that good stuff. You know, you want to make sure, again, that you minimize your risk as, an individual who is doing volunteer work. And if you're a board member, it's on you to make sure that you minimize the risk of the organization. You might also consider asking for a tour and a site visit. That would help you to learn more about the organization, get a chance to observe them, you know, on a day-to-day basis, see what a day in the life is like. And, you know, you make mental notes. You know, what do you observe? What does it feel like? Does it seem like a good fit? You also want to know what the time commitment is. You know, what are they looking for you to do as a person on that committee? You know, are they on that committee as a board member at large? You know, what is the financial commitment? Are there any dues? Are they asking you for a minimum dollar amount to contribute to the organization? Are they looking for dues? 
is it give or get? You know, meaning that if you can't, um, yeah, meaning that if you can't afford to give, are you committed to raising the money? Okay, and I see that Sulatu, and I could be pronouncing your name wrong, so forgive me if I am, just join the conversation. I just want to say welcome. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, please um, make sure that you post, and I will you know, address your issue. All right, again, welcome aboard. Tell us you know, where you're from um, and whether or not you're on the board. What are you looking to get out of this conversation? That that would be helpful. Okay, and then another thing you want to know, is there a committee structure? You know, sometimes boards don't operate so effectively when they don't have committees. They're trying to do everything as a whole, and that can be cumbersome. So um, I'm not saying you don't join, but you know, at least know what you're getting into. You want to ask, again, ask about orientation, ask about term limits, and before you do it, most importantly, make sure you're willing to commit the time, money, and your network you know, to help them accomplish their goals, mission, and objectives. You know, you're not there to take up space. You're actually there to contribute, you know, to the best of your ability. And if you're not willing to contribute, you don't want to sit there and be, you know, dead weight and that drains the organization. So that's not fair to them. So before you join, make sure you are, in fact, committed. So we wanted to talk a little bit about some of the challenges of being on boards. And, you know, boards have various stages. But, you know, if you're on a board that is a uh, working board, meaning that there is no staff or there may be one or two staff members and the rest of the board members, you actually have to be hands-on. You know, one of the... The hard things is, you know, change management. You know, trying to manage the cultural change, you know, that is being brought about by having new people like you join the board. You know, there might also be board turnover. You know, that could be a huge issue. And if people have been with that organization a while, they could be entrenched in their old ideas, and then you come on with your fresh ideas. And you have to be very careful about how you come in and address people because you don't want to be perceived as an upstart and then people close down on you, you know. And and if you're brought on um, with the, I, I guess, imperative of helping the leaders to make change, again, you have to be careful about how quickly and how drastically you make change because you don't want to have, you know, that much disruption. Um, another challenge is establishing trusting relationships between the old guard and new members and then making sure all members remain actively engaged. And that's a challenge regardless of 
who your board is or how large it is. You want to make sure that your programs are relevant and can respond to change and make sure that the community continues to be served and you're in alignment also with the funders. So some of the tools that you can use, you know, again, we talked about strategic planning, making sure that you position your organization strategically, you know, looking at what your capabilities are within the context of your environment and making sure that you can serve people within the context of the environment and what the market demands. Your orientation package or the orientation package that they give you can help. And then the board development committee, if they have one, that committee will help you to develop as a board member and, and then make sure that everybody is properly trained. So ask them if they actually have a board development committee and then ask them for job descriptions so you get a real flavor of what's of what's expected. Another challenge, as within any organization, is communication. You know, whenever you have people involved, you know, there could, especially you have two groups of people, you know, older members versus newer members. And I'm not talking about age. I'm talking about people who've been with the organization for a while and you stepping in as a new person. Um, there may be hidden agendas. You know, people may not open up and tell you what, you know, what their real agendas are. You have to kind of talk to people and observe and, and see what's going on. And there are a number of conflicts that can arise just because, you know, one member mis totally misunderstood what another member was saying. Conflicts can also arise when people talk out of turn in public, meaning they say something and it's construed to be said on behalf of the organization, and then that doesn't represent the views of the organization, or that person may be unauthorized to speak. So it's very important that there are communication policies in place. So you, you might want to ask, you know, what their policy on communication is. And some of the tools that you can use for that, obviously, open and honest communication and try not to be so blunt that people shut down. Um, disclosure statements to disclose any conflicts that you might have. Um, again, communi communication policies, media policies. So communication, how you can communicate in public meetings outside of the board meetings, outside of the organization, how are you going to communicate with the media, who actually is authorized to speak, and how do you make sure that people understand that you're speaking on behalf of the organization versus yourself personally. Another issue that comes up is with your board operations. You know, sometimes there's a tendency of people getting stuck on, an old, on old business. And you, the way you can tell if you haven't started with an organization yet, 
um, you can look at the minutes and you can see how long, you know, and a specific agenda item stays on the agenda. Does it stay on the agenda for several months or do they dispense of it quickly? Um, another issue with board operations is always recruiting and retaining good members and keeping them engaged. So some of the tools that can be used would be things like consent agendas where you're approving routine matters as a group. Um, board recruitment and orientation packages are always helpful for you as a member to study and you as an existing board member to prepare for new members and even for existing members. You should also have a nominating committee and or a board development committee. And if not, then the executive committee, who is comprised of the officers, they would serve that role. And it's always important, too, for organizations to evaluate what it is that they do. So you, the board should evaluate itself from time to time. Ethics, that's a huge issue. You know, again, conflicts of interest um, is one. Getting involved in partisan political activities. You know, you as a board member or you as an organization, you can um, provide voter education, you can provide voter registration and share other political information. But when it comes to being partisan, meaning pushing a specific party, pushing a specific candidate, then you are crossing the line. And then there's also that pressure to hire friends and family of board members or associates of funders and other people with influence. Now, that's something that you have to be very, very careful because just because they are any of, within any of those categories doesn't mean that they're not qualified, but, you know, if all you have is, you know, in your, on your staff is family and friends of influential people, then that's a problem. So some of the tools you can use are conflict of interest policies, and remember your policies are only as good as your willingness to enforce them. Um, statements of ethics that each board member would sign conflict of interest policy should also be signed by individuals. Bylaws that, that are approved by the board, policies on political activities, personnel policies and procedures. All of those you know, help you address those issues that I just named. Huge problem almost every board faces is fundraising and especially as it relates to getting board members to participate. So, again, as I said before, you when you join a board, you should be willing to provide, you know, money out of your own pocket. If that's not something you can afford to do, perhaps you have relationships where you can raise the money. And if it's not something you're willing or able to do, then you probably should not be on that particular board. So, you know, you, you want to look at the board orientation packet and see what their expectations are 
of board members in terms of payment, you know, give or get. You want to look at the board job description to, you know, look at what your role is in fundraising beyond pulling money out of your own pocket. You want to look at specific articles and bylaws as they relate to fundraising. And then you want to look at the actual fundraising policies and procedures. And so, again, you know what you're, you're getting into. So uh, before I go further, I want to let you know we're still taking questions from our listening audience and chat room. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347-884-8121. And Salatu has a comment. Enjoying your show, marked it to return and listen multiple times. Thank you so much. Sorry for the delayed response. Was disconnected for some reason when I hit the keyboard. I am so sorry that that happened to you, um, Salatu. I, I thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for for your comments and all that good stuff. You just made my day. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So. So listen to see, you know, you know, especially that spot where where you missed, and, and I'm sorry about that. And another challenge of transitioning to a volunteer governing board, and, you know, we're talking about going from a working board where there's no staff or there may be one or two staff and then you're expanding, right, to this more institutionalized board where you have, you know, larger staff and all that good stuff. So financial management, I don't care um, where you are, what stage in your development, what stage of development the organization that you're about to join, financial management is always, always an issue. And when you look to join a board, you want to see what their financial accountability is. And you want to look at their financial statements, see if, if the financial statements are current, you want to see if they report. In the ideal sense, everybody's not going to do this because it varies based on, you know, your capabilities as an organization. At, at the very minimum, you want to make sure, regardless of whether or not they're using cash basis, you know, which is basically like running a checkbook, or a cool, which is, you know, more or less um, looking at, it's like looking at your audited statements, and they may or may not be audited. But regardless of how they're doing it, and accrual really means just matching revenues and expenses as they occur, not as you get the cash or as cash leaves. So that's the difference. But you know, just trying to share with you how it might look. So regardless of how they're tracking their funds, the important thing is it's accurate. The important thing is their financial controls, meaning there's no one person who is in control of every step of the financial process. You want to make sure that there are people, the people who receive the money are different from the people, and when I say receive the money, the people who receive checks are different from the people who actually process the checks. And 
and those people are even different from writing the checks. And that becomes problematic in smaller organizations, but you still want to make sure that there's a separation of duties, right? So so those are the things you're concerned about as a board member. Make sure that there's financial accountability, um, separation of duties, and that they are in compliance, you know, in compliance with not only the federal government, but state and local government and with their local funders. And some of the tools that you want to make sure are in place are financial policies and procedures, creation of a finance and budget committee, and you know, your larger boards might even have the finance committee separate from the budget committee. And the finance committee is more focused on how the money, you know, how the operations are going to be financed. So raising money to pay for operations and the budget committee is more focused on looking at expenses. So um, another problem that could arise is when your board chairman and executive director don't seem to be on the same page, you know, that will cause conflict. And you really don't want to be in a situation where there's a whole bunch of conflict. And there's a delicate balance because conflict with, with individuals, you know, those are, you know, that's natural. But you want to make sure that there are systems in place where people can actually resolve them, you know, in a fair way, in a way that uh, people don't walk away feeling wounded. You know, just like in our families, we resolve conflict. You want to make sure that there are more formal mechanisms in your organization to manage conflict. Okay, so uh, we've got a minute left. And we've come to the end of our show. I'd like to thank you for listening. I encourage you to go to iTunes and leave a review. We've included instructions in the comment section to guide you through the process. And be sure to join us next week for another lively episode of Nonprofit Utopia. We will talk about models of collaboration and some of the lessons learned and you can sign up for a reminder right on this episode page. And Salatu, I'm not sure if you follow us yet, but please consider, and you and anyone else who is listening, consider following us, and you can do that on the top left-hand corner. So without further ado, I'm going to hang up. And again, I thank you all. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Um, the recording should be ready within about an hour or so, probably less. But to be on the safe side, we'll say an hour. And I encourage you, please share it in your audiences and you know, share it with, with friends who you think could really benefit from this. So until next week, you take care. All right. Bye-bye.